Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. As humans, we don't have the ability to manipulate time, do we? Now, there are times where we wish that we could make time slow down. We want to, say, enjoy a moment. And there's times where, say, we want it to speed up so that we can get closer to the moment that we're waiting for to get out of an unpleasant situation. But there's nothing worse than sitting and waiting for something to happen. In fact, we have a good old-fashioned cliche for this, don't we? A watched pot never boils. And there's time, very few times where we will actually question that cliche. It seems true all the time. Now, it's likely we can all recall a time of watching and waiting for someone to come and visit us when we were kids. Now, you kids these days won't be able, be able, be able to 100% understand what I'm talking about, but you're going to have to believe me, it's true. There was a time in our lives where we were not able to communicate with everyone all the time. I know that's a shocker. Like I said, you, you have to believe me. It's true. It's outlandish, but it's true. So when a friend was going to come over, or maybe your cousins from a distance away, or your grandparents, they were on their way to visit you, you had, you had an idea of when they were going to arrive, but you could not know for certain. They could say they were going to come at this time, but we weren't able to communicate with them, and so we didn't know how much bathroom breaks had delayed them on the way, or maybe stopping for a meal and the drive through line was extra long, or even road construction. We just didn't know. Now, if you were like me, eventually you would take to looking out the window or maybe even pacing around in the yard and thinking that every car that came over the hill, every one that came around the corner was maybe the correct car. But it wasn't. Over and over, they weren't there. And it felt like time was absolutely standing still. It felt like you were, had reached into the clock, grabbed the second hand, and just stood there like this. Time moved so slowly. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who experienced something like this, waiting for someone to come. And I'm also guessing that I'm not the only one who experienced the joy that happened when they arrived, and then suddenly time almost went too fast. Before you knew it, the time with your grandparents, the time with your cousin, the time with your friend, it was over. And so, what we look at here is this idea that when, when someone finally arrives, when someone comes that we've been waiting for, that is the time that we relish. That's the time that we enjoy. Time can go too slow beforehand or too fast when they're there because what we have been waiting for has finally arrived. And that's part of what Jesus has been communicating here in the passage that we read today. He has come. He is the one. They had been waiting for the Messiah, and now the time has arrived. And so as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Luke this morning, we we see this sort of interesting passage in the unfolding story that Luke is, is telling for us about Jesus. So as we make our way through this passage, we're going to draw out 
three main points from the text once again today. Now, the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus calls a tax collector. As we think back to what we saw the last time that we were in Luke together two weeks ago, we saw a leper. And what happened in that passage? This unclean leper. He understood who Jesus was. And then immediately after that part of the passage, what did we see? The clean, the ritually pure Pharisees, they didn't have faith. They didn't believe in who Jesus was. And so right away, Luke jerks us back into that idea because we see a tax collector having faith in following Jesus. This tax collector is someone who is considered to be undesirable in their culture. And yet, what does the tax collector do? He follows Jesus. He has faith. He believes. Secondly, we see people question the activities of the disciples of Jesus. Now, the people who followed John the Baptist and those who were disciples of the Pharisees, they were known to fast. They were known to abstain from certain food and drink. Well, in contrast, the disciples of Jesus did not. And Jesus lets them know that that the fasting that was being done was a sign of waiting And it was a sign of hope. But now he is here. The time has come. And so it's not a time to be somber and to wait. With Jesus here, the time has come and it's a time for joy. And finally, Jesus teaches them that he is doing something new. Because he has come, things have changed. And this is what we should be looking for. The Pharisees that were questioning Jesus, they're looking to the types and the shadows of the past the things that were looking forward to Jesus. But now that time of hopeful expectation has come and gone. It is now the present with Jesus. He is here. And so it's time to put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus. And so we land here in the first five verses of Luke 5 today as we look at the call that is on Levi. And so as we look at this, We need to talk about the occupation of this new disciple of Jesus that we're introduced to here with Levi. Now, I doubt there has ever been a time in history, I doubt there's ever been a time where being a tax collector was considered a well-loved profession. Okay, Even in our day, we don't like having our money taken from us. That's just the way it is. But at this time in history that we're looking at here, at this place where they are, this was a very, very bad thing to be a tax collector. Our common disdain for the idea of of having somebody take our money and give it to the government, it is common through all of history. But this was not just about disliking someone for causing you to part ways with your hard-earned cash. There was more going on here. You see, the tax collectors were not were not employees of a government that they liked. They were not happy with the fact that Rome had moved in and taken over their territory. The money that they were forced to part with was not going to an Israeli government that they loved, a government that was seated in Jerusalem that they thought was theirs. You see, the tax collectors in this time were agents of the Roman government, and the people considered them to be Agents of those who were occupying their land, they didn't want them there. This was the regime that had desperately wanted them 
to be under their control, and they desperately wanted to give them the boot. They wanted Rome gone. So that's part one of the issue. It's one thing to pay taxes to a government you like, or that at least represents your people in some way. To have someone take your money to fund an institution you hate is another thing. And the other part of why tax collectors were so disliked in present is, in, the, in this present time, is also connected to the name of this tax collector. Notice that his name is Levi. Now we know that this is the disciple Matthew, but, but here Luke refers to him as Levi. And that is a decidedly Hebrew name. This is a Jewish person. So not only is this person collecting money for a government you don't like, they are a traitor. They are disliked because they have aligned themselves with this Roman government that we want out of our territory. So I'm guessing that this was really the common way that this was done because you aren't going to move people from Rome who are loyal to Rome to be tax collectors where they don't speak the language, where they don't know the customs. All these tax collectors were likely people who were supposed to be faithful to Israel, faithful to the Hebrew people, but instead they had switched their allegiances to Rome. So in a society that had a lot of people who might have been considered undesirable, we talked about the lepers two weeks ago, tax collectors would have been at the cl- at very close to the top of the list of people who were undesirable and disliked in their culture. And so this is what Luke is once again bringing up to the surface for us to understand. Jesus has no problem hanging out with those who are undesirable. And also, we see that who is the most likely to follow Jesus? Well, so far in Luke, who is it? It's the undesirable. They're the ones who are following Jesus. These righteous, these self-righteous Pharisees, they don't want anything to do with them. But the lepers, the tax collectors, they have faith. They are the ones who are following Jesus. Not the ones who are ritually clean. The ones who are undesirable. And we see this lined out for us in the very simple way that Luke tells us the story. Because Jesus says two words. Follow me. A very simple command. And what does Luke tell us? Levi gets it. And he understands also the consequences of following that command. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. Think about what this means for him. He's leaving a stable job. He's giving up sure financial security. And he's doing this to be the follower of a rabbi. If you were to just look at this decision on the surface, it would seem foolish. But it's given to us as a story of great faith. And something that causes Levi to celebrate and to have joy. He's giving up his financial security. But yet, what do we see He has joy. He celebrates this. And we see this when we get to verse 29, and it tells us that Levi has made Jesus a great feast. And then look who shows up. More undesirables. Levi left his tax-collecting profession, but because he is now following Jesus, it doesn't mean that he's suddenly in good with the Pharisees and the righteous people who are obsessed with religious purity. Instead, we see that he has a large company of those who are undesirable come to his house. 
All these tax collectors are there. And then the nosy, self-righteous Pharisees have some commentary to give us on the situation. We were just waiting to hear what they had to say, right? They want to know why Jesus hangs out with these type of people. Now, it's important for us to understand why they're making an issue out of this. They would not have liked that he walked around with tax collectors or maybe even be seen in public with tax collectors. They would have seen that as bad in general. But when they saw them dining together, that became a big issue for them. It would have been something that would have been considered to be something that defiles Jesus because he is eating with these unwanted people, these sinners. Remember, the Pharisees are a group that is focused on returning to ritual purity that was prescribed in the law. Their sect, honestly, had good intentions. They saw that people had left God and and God had also sent them out of the land, and he had banished them because of their unfaithfulness. And so they want to return to the purity of God. They want to return to the law. Like I said, they had good intentions, but there was a problem. They had made the bar so high. They set the bar even higher for purity than the law did. They would push their their law-keeping to the highest level they possibly could, They not only forbid what the commands of God were, but they also forbid things that would put you in a position where you might break that law. And then they made it binding upon you. You can't do this because you might break the law if you do it. And then they made that a law. So they were adding laws to the law of God. And so Jesus gives them an answer that shows that he didn't come to reach those who were trying to be righteous on their own, those who thought they were righteous on their own. His answer shows us who he came to save. He tells them that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He has arrived to call sinners to repentance, not to call the righteous. Now, there are really two levels to this statement that it is vital that we understand. Now, the most obvious is that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came for a very particular reason, to save us from our sin. That is why he is here. That is why he has come. And by calling Levi and those who are considered sinners, we're seeing Luke tell us that Jesus is on mission here. And he's going to the people that he came to save. He is going to the sinners but we can make the other significance that I think there is in this statement. He says he didn't come to call the righteous. Now, you and I know from Scripture as a whole, in fact, we read it today in the psalm, there is no one who is righteous on their own. No one, not even one. We are all descendants of our first parents, and we are all fallen in our sin. We see this not only in the statements of Scripture telling us this, we see it in the songs, like I said, we just read it in the psalm, and we see it in the stories, right? As we were going through Genesis together, what did I always say? Every one of the people in Genesis is a scoundrel. They are a sinner. They show us our need for a Savior. And we also see this in the rituals that the Old Testament prescribes, right? 
It shows us that we are unclean and that God is perfectly holy and clean and we need to do something. Something needs to be done in order for us to be clean before a holy God. And so what we see here is that Jesus is not suggesting that the Pharisees don't need the forgiveness that he's offering. They don't need the salvation he's, he's giving them. Instead, what Jesus is driving at, the idea on display for us here, is the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. How they believe they're attaining righteousness on their own. We know from Scripture they are not earning righteousness before God by their keeping of the law. But they think they are. They think they're pulling it off. And so they won't understand what Jesus has come to do until they realize that they're no better than the tax collectors that they are condemning Jesus for hanging out with. The truth is that Jesus came for them, the Pharisees, as well. But until they realize that they can't earn their righteousness before God on their own, they are not going to understand why Jesus has come. To go back to the sickness metaphor where Jesus says the sick need a doctor, until they realize that they're sick, they're going to be like that stubborn man who refuses to go to the doctor no matter how much his wife tells him, right? That's what they're like. They will not go to the doctor. They will not. I see people exchanging looks. It doesn't do you any good until you're willing to go to the doctor. You can admit or you can think that you're just fine, but until you go to the doctor and find out that you're sick and you get the cure, it doesn't do you any good. No matter how many times you are told to go to the doctor, unless you realize you need to go, it doesn't do you any good. That's the point that Jesus is driving home. And so as we continue through our passage for today, we see that this misunderstanding continues as we arrive in our second point. They still don't get it. The Pharisees just won't let up on Jesus. They won't give him a break. They are now going to play the comparison game. And they invoke someone that we have met in Luke so far. The disciples of John the Baptist would fast and offer prayers. And so do the Pharisees. But your disciples don't, Jesus. What's up with that? What's up with the fact that your, your disciples just eat and drink and, and don't fast like the righteous Pharisees and, and, and the disciples of John? Now, fasting was a pretty big deal for Jewish folks. But it's important that we understand that there was really only one, one prescribed time where they were told to fast in the Old Covenant, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Any fasting other than that was a decision of personal piety or perhaps something your particular group, like a group like the Pharisees, that they did. It was not required. So why were these two groups, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, why were they known for their fasting? Well, we understand the underlying mindset of fasting and the contrast of that Feasting. We can't understand fasting without understanding feasting. That's very important. And for us in our time, we don't relatively we don't fast very often. And so it's important that we understand what, what was going through their heads when they fast. So in a fast, what are you doing? You're sorrowful. You're living in expectation that one day the fast will be over and then you're gonna eat, right? 
You don't fast and say, yay, I'm fasting. Oh, later on, I'm going to have to eat. That's not what fasting is. And so to understand what fasting is in, in the mindset of the Hebrew people here, we have to understand that expectation. You know, like I said, we don't fast and then go, oh, shucks, I got to eat later. If you were invited to a big winding with your friends and you were to walk up to them and say, what can I bring? They're not going to say, well, we're having a big party to celebrate Bob's promotion, but we're not going to eat. They would, they would say, no, we're feasting. This is a celebration. So in a fast, you're sorrowful. You're penitent. And so these two groups were fasting as a way of either showing their piety, that they were acknowledging that they were holier than other people, or they were hopefully waiting for the Messiah, living in hope and expectation that one day, yes, the Messiah will come. And so Jesus uses this as more than a conversation about what you should do regarding food and drink. He's using this as another opportunity to imply that he is the one that we've been waiting for. When the one who is bringing forgiveness has come, you don't need to live in penitence and expectation anymore. What do you do when you know you've been forgiven? You celebrate with joy. And so we see this in the imagery that he uses with the wedding feast here. You've all been to a wedding, and while in our modern setup there are, there are usually appetizers for you when you get to the reception, waiting for the bridal party to arrive, you aren't going to get to the bridal, uh, to the wedding reception. You're not going to walk in, be the first one there, and go through the food line and get your chicken or beef, whatever you decided to eat, right? No, you wait. You wait. You have expectation that, yes, we are going to feast when the bride gets here, when the bridal party arrives. And this is the idea that Jesus is expressing. The bridegroom has shown up at the feast, and so it is time to party. It's not time to refuse food. It's time to celebrate. And as I said, Jesus is driving home this idea that he's the Messiah. And he also foreshadows the future, doesn't he? He says the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, when Jesus is with them, they have joy. There is celebration. Why would they restrain themselves from food? But once he has gone away from them, there will be occasions for sorrow. There will be occasions for fasting. But right now is not that time. This is the time for joy. Jesus is pointing forward to the fact that he is going to suffer and die. And as the passage closes out, Jesus has a few parables to drive this point home even further as he talks about what he's come to do. Remember as I started out, the people have been waiting and it seemed like forever for the Messiah to come. And now Jesus is letting them know, he is here. He has come. He is the Messiah. And all of these illustrations that we see here make sense to us when we take a look at them, and they show us why there is reason for joy and celebration. As I said, Jesus says here things that make sense to us. If you have a tear in a piece of clothing, and you're going to patch it, you don't go get that new shirt that you just bought that is in perfectly good condition. You don't take something that's damaged and fix it with something that's new, that you just purchased, that is, that is wonderful and good. 
And even if you, if you, even if you live in a disposable age like ours, you probably don't even think about patching a piece of clothing, right? What do you do? It goes into the rag bin or it goes into the trash. Why? Because the new is better. We understand this. What are we going to wear? The torn, nasty garment or the new one? Or the new one? And in our day of easily accessible glass bottles, we also might struggle a little bit to understand this wineskins illustration that Jesus uses. But I think we can pretty easily grasp the principle here. Old wineskins are old. And the reason they're old is because the wine was fermented in them, and when it fermented, they expanded. And you designed the wineskins to stretch. You used things that would stretch so that they wouldn't explode and end up with wine all over the place. They had space for the wine to ferment. And if you filled the old wineskins with new wine, it would stretch them more beyond what they were designed to do, beyond what they were capable of holding. Well, and then we have another illustration that involves wine. Jesus goes back to the wine, but this time he talks about the old wine being good. The old wine is aged. It tastes better. In other words, Jesus is saying if you taste something that is the way it's truly supposed to be, if it's developed, if if it's finally to its perfect stage, you're not going to want to go back to that which is not ready, that which is not full. You don't eat something that is unripe when you've tasted something that is ready to be consumed and it's full of flavor. This is the way things are designed. This is the way things work. And all of this is Jesus saying that he has come and he has brought salvation and what he has come to do is perfection. This is what we have been waiting for. Jesus is telling us that he is doing something new and it is a new garment that is so much better than the torn, flawed one. It's able to to hold the complete promise of salvation because that's what it was intended to do. And it's like the wine. It is sweet. This salvation has come to perfection. And it's what the old covenant system was pointing to in the first point. And so the big point that Jesus is driving home here with these three parables is that you can't mix what the Pharisees are doing with the hope and promise that the work of Jesus offers. We can try to rest on our own salvation. We can try to cover ourselves. We can try to cover our sins with our own garments of righteousness, but they are worn out. They are torn. Why would we try and patch it here and there with what Jesus has done? Instead, we should just take what Jesus has to offer. We can think that we are filling ourselves up with our own righteousness following God's law. We can think that we're doing things perfectly, that we're making ourselves righteous in God's sight, but all we're doing is putting new wine into old wineskins. The law itself was not meant to hold that. It'll burst. We can't be righteous in our own. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And we see here that we don't want to mix the old wine 
with the new? Why would we take that which is good and perfect, the work of Jesus, and mix it with us trying to make ourselves righteous on our own? All three of these illustrations all three of these illustrations are designed to show us our desperate need for Jesus. The fact that there is nothing greater than the salvation that Jesus brings. The old covenant was good, but it was never intended to bring the people of God to full righteousness by their own works. That was never the intention. Instead, the old covenant, the law, was pointing to the perfect righteousness that would one day come in the Messiah. And we see that it is sweet and glorious because it comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message that Jesus has for his people in this passage is that we are desperately in need of his salvation. And when we acknowledge this and receive it by faith, we understand the joy and the peace that comes from knowing that we don't reach our status of righteousness before God by what we do, but instead by faith through the grace of God. And there is no greater reason for joy as we relish the truth of salvation that we have been blessed with through Jesus living the perfect life that you and I could not live by his bearing the wrath of God for our sin and his death, rising to defeat death and to show us that death does not have the last word for us and ascending to reign over his kingdom and to intercede for us at the Father's right hand. And so it's with this truth in mind that we stop and we assess how we can apply the truths of this passage to our daily lives in the coming week. And there's one application that I want us to deeply consider this week, and that is to enjoy the new wine that we have in Jesus. As we look at these passages in this section of Luke, and well, the, the Gospels as a whole, it's so easy so easy for us to gang up on the bad guys in the story. Look at those Pharisees. Look at how they treat Jesus. Look how they try to earn their salvation on their own. Look how they pass judgment on other people. But when we stop and we think about it, isn't there a little bit or even a whole lot of a bit of Pharisee in each and every one of our hearts? It's human nature. It's human nature for us to want to earn our own salvation. It's our human nature to think that we can build up our righteousness before God on our own. Even if it's just a little bit, we want to contribute. We want to climb the ladder to God on our own. We want to mix our own works with the free grace of God. But that's not a patch that matches the garment. That garment will tear. We cannot be perfectly righteous on our own. If we try to fill up the wineskin with the new wine of, of us following the law, the wineskins are going to burst. And we don't want to mix the tasty, perfectly fermented wine of the gospel with the bitter new wine of the righteousness that we think we can do on our own. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so the call to us is to rest fully on the new thing that has arrived, the new thing that has come in what has been done for us in Jesus. For he's come to rescue us from our sin and our unbelief. He is the doctor that we need to see. He has called us to repentance 
by faith in himself that we might have great joy. And so may you and I feast on the grace that God offers us. For he has given us the gospel. We were sick, and he came and made us well. We were sinners, and he made us righteous and holy in his sight. And so may we enjoy the, the absolute joy and celebration that comes from this salvation that we have been given by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.